I'll ask you to open in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in verses 33 through 37 this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as Jesus continues to, to remind us, really, of who we are and why we need Him. Um, so much of where we are in the Sermon on the Mount right now, having established the, the character of a Christian in the Beatitudes, after calling us to be salt and light in the church, after establishing the significance of the, um, of the law and telling us that, Jesus, that He has come to fulfill it, now Jesus begins to point out and, and put His finger on specific teachings from the law, specific teachings derived from the law that the people had heard and been exposed to, but in and of themselves, were insufficient. They missed the point of what God had intended. Jesus, of course, wanting to not to diminish the law in any way. He's very clear that He's not come to, that, that not one stroke of the law shall pass away until all things have been completed. That He Himself would be the fulfillment of the law. We know in hindsight, looking back, that the ultimate fulfillment of the law is Himself. As through His life, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus fulfilled the law. We need to understand, though, that that word fulfill, when He says He's come to fulfill the law, it's not merely just the completion of a prophecy. It means to fill to the fault, to fill to the full, to give us the greatest meaning possible in the law. See, Jesus, at this point, Jesus is still looking forward. The people don't know yet what He's going to do. And so Jesus is helping them to see the full understanding, to give them the full understanding of why God had given them the law. He had given them the law so that they might understand their own inadequacies, that we might understand our own weaknesses, our own failures, and our great need for the Lord and for His grace and mercy in our life. And so Jesus' instruction here helps us to recognize our weaknesses, to recognize our failures, and to rejoice in the the abundant grace that He has provided for us. Many of Jesus' audience had grown accustomed to hearing God's law taught and applied in a particular manner that often fell short of what God intended. And anytime you have the teaching of the law that falls short, the teaching of God's word that falls short of God's intention, that impacts people's relationship with God. It impacted their relationship with God. It impacted their lives. It impacted their witness to the surrounding countries and nations. And because it impacted their reputation as God's children. And every time Jesus addresses an issue of the law in this section of the text, He does so with the express purpose of revealing the heart of his audience, with revealing our hearts. God's Word is meant to bring conviction upon us as it leads us into a deeper relationship with himself. And in this section in chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, Jesus deals with God's law as it relates to the command to speak the truth. Words matter. Honesty matters. 
How many of you think honesty is important? How many of you think it's important in all areas of life? You don't have to raise your hand for this next one. How many of you are honest in all areas of your life? That's kind of the point that Jesus is making is that even, if, even when we strive to be honest in all areas of life, a lot of times we fall short. And that's the purpose of this section is to help us recognize where we fall short and to remind us of our great need for Him. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's Word this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Gracious Father, Have your way in our hearts this morning. Lead us to a place of submission. Lead us to a place of recognition, Lord, where we have fallen short of your standard. And may we cling to the hope granted to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, as you continue to guide our hearts and conform us to his likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, so far as we've looked at several of these commands that Jesus has addressed, of course, he starts off with a couple of commands right out of the Decalogue, right out of the Ten Commandments in which he tells us, you shall not, what? Commit murder, right? You shall not commit adultery, right? He deals with those. Those are direct quotations, Last week, we looked at, at the, the command that Jesus gives, which was not a direct quotation from the Old Testament, but rather a teaching that had been derived and actually misinterpreted from the Old Testament regarding divorce and remarriage. And Jesus talks about those. Now, once again, we come to this where Jesus says, the, again, you have heard the ancients were told, and he gives us this this statement here, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. It's a statement that represents an Old Testament truth, but is not a direct quotation from any place in the Old Testament. It is rather a, a synopsis of truth. But there is, and when you look at that, we look at that and we say, well, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's not, just like there's nothing wrong with the other commands that Jesus had, had mentioned. I mean, obviously, when you're quoting directly from the Old Testament, there's nothing wrong with what's been said, right? The What's been wrong and what we need to understand is what Jesus is pointing out is not what the Old Testament has taught, but the, what, the way that it was taught. He's not, he's not commenting on any deficiency in God's Word, but rather the insufficiency of the teaching and the application of God's Word that had come, that had come down through the ages. And so here he addresses his hearers by showing them the deficiency in what they had been taught by their religious leaders. 
Now, you would think that the importance of truthfulness in every circumstance would be a priority for the children of God, right? I mean, that just, it just makes sense. We know we're all taught from a very young age, you're supposed to be honest. You're supposed to tell the truth. That God's word tells us, again, you go back to the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not bear false witness. And what, what are we taught that that means? Don't lie, right? I mean, it's an offense to God for us to be untruthful, for us to practice deceit, for us to not speak the truth. But yet, if we're honest, we recognize that failure within ourselves, even as Jesus recognized it within his audience. He, he's seen that the people had, they knew this truth. They were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. And yet, they spent a great deal of time looking for loopholes in how they could get out of telling the whole truth. That was kind of the reality that they were dealing with. We kind of do the same thing. We, you know, we approach life and things come up and we're like, well, you know what, if I just... If I only give them this much, it's the truth, it's just not the whole truth. Well, you know what they say, a, a half-truth is a whole lie, right? And, and so, the same kind of thing that Jesus was dealing with in his day, we deal with today. Because people, just in their nature, in their fallen nature, people have a tendency to be dishonest. And so, there arose a need in which to compel people to try and be more truthful. And this is where the, the idea of making oaths comes in. Because of the dishonesty of people, because of their reputation for not speaking the truth, they, God made provision and, and gave them direction for binding themselves under oath to Him in order that their word might be believed and followed and that they would uphold it. And so this is where all of this derives from. And Jesus, again, recognizing our weaknesses and recognizing that people's tendency towards lying is that it reveals a desire to do whatever it takes to be accepted, believed, or accomplish their purpose. Or is showing us, rather, the, the reality of what has been taught is not the issue, but the way in which it has been applied. And the reason why he's concerned about this, just as he is with everything in the Sermon on the Mount, has to do with our righteousness as his children. Now when I say that, when I say our righteousness as his children, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about our declared righteousness in Christ. That is, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous before God. That cannot be taken away. But there is a practical righteousness which ought to be true of every believer. And this is what Jesus is, is bringing to bear on his audience and bringing to bear on us is that there is a practical righteousness that should be worked out in our life. And we need to recognize where we've fallen short in that practical righteousness in order that we might pursue it and attain to that which most glorifies him. We're saved for the purpose that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. So in everywhere we fall short of Christ's character, we need to be pursuing that reality. We need to be pursuing that truth. And when it comes to the area of honesty in our life, which is, obviously it's, it's an issue. We see it in history, we see it in life, we've experienced it ourselves. When it comes to the area of honesty, we need to recognize not only what God's Word has said, but how it has been abused, how it has been turned aside, and what is the intention in this instruction and how 
can we bring ourselves into submission under it? Jesus deals with the issue of honesty in three phases in this section. First, he deals with the premise for taking oaths. That is where we start off here in verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. And we've already seen, we, we, we recognize this is a summary statement from the Old Testament. It's derived primarily from, from two different uh, verses, Leviticus 19.12 and Numbers 20.32. We're going to see there, Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. And then Numbers 30, verse 2 says, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, these two Old Testament commands, they obviously they emphasize the importance of telling the truth. They give us God's standard and God's direction that we can bind ourselves to Him in an oath in order to emphasize the veracity, the truthfulness of the things which are being spoken. But it would not be necessary to have such a thing if lying wasn't an issue in the first place. But because of the fallenness of our nature, because of the tendency for us to exaggerate our circumstances or to deceive others for our own purposes or to, to say untruths that we believe will make us more acceptable to somebody or keep us out of trouble, the Lord recognizes the weakness within us and the need for there to be a way to bind ourselves to encourage, let me put it this way, to encourage truthfulness among us and to help us to see the need for the truth. And while these instructions were given as an emphasis for truthfulness, they had come to be used as excuses for not telling the truth or for deceiving others by stopping short of binding themselves to an oath in the name of the Lord by making an oath in the name of something that would maybe be associated with the Lord, but not necessarily in the name of the Lord. You see, they, they kind of came to recognize that, you know, in the, in the Ten Commandments, Jesus not, or God not only told us that we're not supposed to, to lie, but we're not to take the Lord's name in vain, right? So if you bind yourself to the Lord and then you don't do what you've said you're going to do in His name, you've not only lied, but you've also profaned His name. You've taken His name in vain. And, and so the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, what they would start to do is they started to make rules about taking oaths. And so you would have levels of oath-taking. You could take an oath in, in the name of the temple or in the name of the altar, or you could take an oath, and then later on they changed it and says, well, no, you can't, you can't swear by the things on the altar, but the gift that's on the altar. You can't swear by the temple, but the gold in the temple. And you can't, and, and, so, and we're going to look at that in just a minute because Jesus dress, addresses that also. But what, in their mind, what they did was they were, they were looking for ways they could make oaths without endangering themselves of taking God's name in vain. Because they held that to be a higher command than some of the others that were there. A lot of what goes on in Israel's history 
deals with the way that they address taking the Lord's name in vain. I mean, to the, to the point where they didn't use the name of God. When they, when they would read Scripture and they came across the name of God, they would always just say, Lord, instead of the name for God. And, and that became to be their practice because they were so focused on that reality of not taking his name in vain. And yet, so they made all of these rules for oath-taking so that some oaths were less binding than others, right? So you've got some that, you know, if you swear by this, then, then this needs to be upheld. But if you know, if you do this, then there may be some wiggle room, right? And so they come up with all these rules for how you can, how you can get out of keeping your word. Now, I think from a, from a 21st century context, that seems a little bit ridiculous to us that, you know, I mean, we recognize that we, if you give your word, that's your word. It ought to be truthful. It ought to be honest. It ought to be binding. You shouldn't have to say, I swear by whatever, or I swear according to, or I, you know, you shouldn't have to do that. You shouldn't have to bind yourself to an oath. And that's part of what Jesus is saying here, and, and part of the change in our culture over the years has come from, from what we see here, yet we have to see this historically so that we can understand it practically in our own sense. And the truth is that these practices among the people existed in order that they might find that wiggle room in making oaths. And there's so much in Scripture by way of example and by way of of instruction concerning oaths, I was really surprised when I, when I was studying this this past week and, and just how much information in Scripture there is about taking oaths. I mean, it's something that just doesn't seem to impact our life on a daily basis. We understand that we ought to be truthful, but we don't really understand the, the significance of what Jesus is, is teaching here. And yet, Scripture is full of examples of that binding yourself under an oath. I mean, you go back to Abraham, and uh, when Abraham's son Isaac was of the time he was going to get married, what did he do? He had his servant swear an oath to him that he would not take a wife for Isaac from the, from the women among the Canaanites. But he would go back to his homeland, right? And he would take him there. So there, there was an oath. Later on, we see that that uh, that Isaac, or that uh, Jacob, Israel, when they go to the land of Egypt, right? Joseph has saved the people. They've gone to live in the land of Egypt. When, he get, when it gets close for him to time to die, he makes his sons swear that they will not bury him in Egypt. And so they, there's, there's the taking of an oath there. You also see that the children of Israel, throughout their time wandering in the wilderness, man, they take a lot of oaths before God to uphold his commands, to do the things that he said, to, in order to... Um, in order to enjoy his blessings. And so we see all these examples of oaths throughout Scripture, and yet we realize the tendency for so many of these examples for them to fall short, especially when you consider the oaths that Israel made before God. I mean, continuously and constantly falling apart. The tendency of mankind to exaggerate and lie for their own benefit just reveals 
the hardness and the darkness of our hearts and why God made the provision in the first place. If there was reason for skepticism on one's part, an oath was invoked to establish truthfulness of the statements of promises being made. But what exactly is an oath? I mean, what, is it, what does it mean to swear before God, to bind yourself to Him? It, it's really, as I thought about this this week, it started off being kind of confusing because you hear people say all kinds of crazy things. You know, I swear on my mother's grave, or I swear on my, on my kids, or I swear on, you know, whatever. And they, they swear on all these different things. But yet, the, the idea of taking the oath, of taking a vow, of, of swearing before God is to invoke God as witness to what's being promised and to invite His judgment if the promise is not upheld. That is the parameters, if you will, of oath-taking. Understanding what that means, it makes it sound a little ridiculous when you hear people say things like, I swear on my mama's grave, because what kind of witness is that going to be and what kind of judgment does that carry? I mean, but you hear people say that, why? Why do they say those things? Because they're trying to emphasize that they're telling the truth. And it's become common for us to use things like that to emphasize that we're telling the truth, but it's become so commonplace and so, in our own culture, it's become so common and and so um, meaningless, really, to hear even someone say, I swear to God, doesn't necessarily make you believe what they're going to say, other than the fact that you think they're trying to, they may be trying to get away with something because they feel it necessary to say it. And so, but in the ancient world, and what Jesus was dealing with, is this idea that it is to bring God as witness. And it was a common practice of the times for business arrangements, personal commitments, and commitments made to God. And the interesting thing is even God makes oaths. He takes oaths in the Old Testament. He swears by himself in several places. He swears by himself concerning both blessings and judgment. In the books, in uh, Jeremiah's prophecy and in Amos's prophecy, he gives us, he swears by himself to bring judgment. In Isaiah's prophecy and also in, back in the book of Genesis, um, God swears by himself to bring blessing. The one in Genesis is referenced in the New Testament book of Hebrews, and this is where we get some additional insight into the significance of God's own oath, swearing by himself. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14 says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Now let me ask you something. Is, does God swearing by his own name make his statement any more truthful than it would have been without it? No, right? God's word is truth, right? God's word is truth. God did not need to swear by himself to make it any more believable. So why does he do it? He does it to emphasize the significance of what it is that he's saying. It doesn't change the truthfulness of it. God's word is true, but he's emphasizing the significance of what it is that he's saying, of the promise that he's making. And so we see the the, the precedent for oath-taking established in the Old Testament, not only by God's word, but also by his example. Not that the oaths make anything more truthful, but are emphatic of significant truth, but that idea had been lost along the way. And so Jesus begins, and, and he establishes the premise for taking oaths, as solidly laid out in the Old Testament, 
in order that he might highlight the insufficiency of its application where it had become corrupted. And so in the second phase, beginning in verse 34, Jesus addresses the problem of taking oaths. Look there in verse 34 with me. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now you can tell through this listing that Jesus gives here that the people in their application of the Old Testament direction had corrupted what God's Word had taught because they were swearing by all of these other things, right? They were swearing by heaven. They were swearing by the earth. They were swearing by their own head. And Jesus is saying, listen, you've corrupted God's intention. You've corrupted His Word. And Jesus, and Jesus wants to help them understand that every vow, every promise, every word that is given is either directly or indirectly a word made before God. Whether or not you bind yourself under an oath, God knows the things that you say. And God expects you to uphold your word. He says, you swear by heaven? Well, heaven is the place where God reigns. So how can you swear by heaven and not think you're swearing by God? You swear by the earth. The earth as his footstool is under God's complete sovereign control. How can you swear by the earth and not think that you're swearing by God? You swear by Jerusalem, the city of the great king. How can you swear by the city for which God had purposed to place his name? For which God promised that he would one day rule from on this earth and not think that you are swearing by God. Even to swear by your own head is to swear by something that God created and God has control over. Because now he's not talking about the ability to dye your hair here by making your hair white or black. You can't control what color it grows in at, right? It's going to grow the way God intended it to grow. It's, that's, just, that's just the way it is. We have no control over that. So why would we swear by something we have no control over? But yet, the people were, and the various degrees and interpretations of oaths made their usage suspect. And people were using them to try and seek credibility at the same time while trying to provide a loophole in case it became too difficult to honor their word. But any word that we give, especially as God's children, any word that we give as, as believers, as followers of Christ, ought to be binding because we are representatives of Christ. And so our word represents him. Our word should be truth in order that he might be honored through it. Jesus, in looking at all of these different implications and applications of, of the oaths and swearing, says this has got to stop. We've got to stop misinterpreting and misapplying the Word of God. 
We've got to stop manipulating things to our own benefit in order to try and make ourselves look better or to try and improve ourselves or or to get our own way. And so he makes the statement. He says, I say to you, make no oath at all. And then he goes through the list of all these different oaths that they're making. And so now some have interpreted this and come back to a, an absolute exclusion to making any kind of promise before God, of binding yourself before God. Some, um, including um, some, some Quakers even to this day, um, will refuse to swear on the Bible um, in a court of law because they feel it's breaking God's Word. I would, I would suggest to you that Jesus' intention here is not to give an absolute exclusion to taking an oath. I mean, after all, God himself has taken oaths. Jesus puts himself under an oath when he's, un, when he's under trial. And the high priest says, I adjure you by, in the name of God to tell us whether or not you are the Christ. And what does Jesus do? He tells him, I am. So to see this as an absolute exclusion to taking an oath is not the point. He's basically telling us that that the the purpose here is for us to recognize that the oath isn't the issue. The heart is the issue. In fact, in another place, in in Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22, this won't be up on the board because it's a a little bit lengthier um, um, text, but he deals with the Pharisees. He confronts them again in this issue of taking oaths. And he says there, he says, Woe to you blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears by both the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by both the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And you know what's interesting in this? There's a lot of interesting things in this, in this exchange with the Pharisees here. But a couple things I just want to point out real quick. Um, first of all, when Jesus is talking about this, he's revealing the hearts of the people because what, what were the things they were swearing by? They were things that they, they said you could swear by the things that could be levied against, right? You could swear by the gold because they could put a value to that. You could swear by the gift of the altar because you could put a value to that. And Jesus is revealing their hearts. He says that's not the important thing. The important thing is where your heart is. The important thing is the holiness of God. That's the important thing. That's why he keeps pointing them back to the holiness of God. When you're violating your word, you're violating the holiness of God. And that's what he keeps reminding them and keeps telling them there. The other interesting thing here is here is it within this, in this context in which he's again berating them for their heart and the issue there, he makes no, he makes no prohibition. He makes no prohibition there. He just simply tells them the issue is your heart. And that's what he keeps bringing us back to. The religious leaders had determined, excuse me, that you could swear by these things because, you know, they're practical. And that's a lot of times the way we approach God's word. You know, we just, we want to be practical in the way we approach God's word. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But you just got to be careful that in, in making it practical that you don't undermine the holiness of God. 
Matthew Henry, in his commentary, explains Jesus' prohibition back here in the Sermon on the Mount in this way. He says, he says that we must not swear at all, but when we are duly called to it. And justice or charity to our brother or respect to the commonwealth make it necessary for the end of strife of which necessity the civil magistrate is ordinarily to be the judge. Now what that means basically is there's going to be times when you may be called on to give an oath in order to keep the peace, in order to testify in court, in order to do those things. And he says, listen, that's, that's, not, that's not the issue basically. And he references Hebrews 6.16 6, which says, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So even there in the New Testament, we have instruction which speaks to the giving of an oath to end disputes, the giving of an oath to help um, establish truthfulness. So there are obviously some contexts and some places where oaths are useful and 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 applicable in which they can be carried out. And I'm just and I'm going back to, to last week because Jesus, in talking about um, divorce and remarriage, was really upholding the significance of marriage and the marriage vows. Right? The marriage vows are vows taken before God. There are vows not just taken between a man and a woman, but between a man and a woman and God, so that God would bear witness to the covenant and that and that God would uphold and lead and direct through that covenant. And so. So oaths and vows in and of themselves are not bad, but we need to recognize what Jesus meant here was to uncover the reality of their heart and to give a prohibition of making all various types of vows that to be interpreted as more or less binding. That's, that's the issue. It's like, but why make an oath at all? I mean, it's why make an oath at all. I was reminded in, in studying this uh, this week that just not that many weeks ago on Sunday night, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, Solomon gives this instruction there. In Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 6, he says, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? There is an, an inescapable connection between making a vow and inviting judgment. What we need to recognize is that Jesus' prohibition against taking a vow was simply to point to the reality that every word we speak, that every promise we make, is under the same scrutiny and the same judgment as if we had taken a vow before him, if we had bound ourselves under an oath. So the vow is not necessary, except in such cases where it helps to end disputes, as in Hebrews 6, 6, 6 16. So Jesus magn is magnifying the significance of our words and pointing us to the reality of practicing truth. And this is the final phase that he deals with here in verse 37. He says, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. 
He's just being plainly honest with us that our word is binding, that our word needs to be clear, that the things which we say, and yes, yes, and no, no, those, those are emphatic statements. He says, so you can be emphatic. He says, but don't go about trying to deceive people and making vows that you don't intend to keep. Don't go about trying to find loopholes in the promises that you make. Keep your word. To speak unclearly is not only to make people doubt your word and harm your reputation, but it also harms the name of Christ. It damages our ability and opportunity to be witnesses in the world. When you don't keep your word, people doubt your trustworthiness. And if they doubt your trustworthiness, they will not listen when you seek to share the gospel with them. And so Jesus says that anything beyond these is of evil. Or some translations say the evil one. Either translation is correct. Because the root of evil is found in the enemy who is the father of lies. The devil from of old. The accuser. He is the source of all that is there. In the book of James, James chapter 5, verse 12, James gives us a summary of what Jesus has been saying. He says, Above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no so that you may not fall under judgment. As I said, it's not necessary for us to take an oath to be guilty before God. But let us be a people of good reputation. Let us be a people that stands on our word. Let us recognize that the honoring of our word is a reflection of our relationship to Christ. Let us recognize that as we speak to people, as we make promises, as we tell them that we're going to do it, that we should make every effort to accomplish those things which we've said, to accomplish those things which we've agreed to, in order that we might establish our character as being consistent with the one whom we serve, our Lord Jesus Christ. And recognizing the instruction that's given to us, we're also reminded of the reason why Jesus came in the first place. We are weak. We have a tendency to give in to temptation, to stretch the truth, to withhold the truth, and to bend the truth to our own purpose and benefit. And yet in Christ... There is grace and forgiveness. Yet in Christ, in the shedding of His blood, He offers to us purity, cleansing, and a renewed nature, a new heart given to serve and honor Him. Because He provides for us this abundant grace that not only purifies us, that not only forgives us, but also gives us us 
the ability and the strength to overcome. To be representatives of truth as He has called us to be. It cannot be emphasized enough how important the testimony of your life is. Not just so that people won't say bad things about you. Not just so that people will like you and not so that you don't get a reputation as being untruthful. I mean, yes, those things are important. We ought to care about what people think about us, but not because of what it does to us, but because of what it does to Christ. If we are His, then we have an obligation to live and act in such a way as represents Him and grants to us the ability and the opportunity to speak the truth of Christ into others' lives and to be believed. But I want you to understand something as we close this morning. And it's, it's not enough to simply want to tell the truth. I mean, as a reflection of our new nature in Christ, we are given a heart and a desire to tell the truth. But how many times have you wanted to tell the truth and found yourself getting trapped in a lie? falling short of that standard. It's not enough to want to tell the truth. We are dependent on the strength of God's Holy Spirit to lead us to stand on the truth. The truth is the foundation of our faith because it is God's Word. The truth is the foundation of our spiritual armor as we engage the enemy day by day. The armor of God is built upon the belt of truth. Truth is so important to us. But it's not enough for us just to want it. We have to surrender to Christ. We have to let His Spirit guide us and strengthen us in order that we might cling to that hope. So that when we are tempted by deceit, when we are tempted to tell a lie, that the power of Christ may undergird us and uphold us and lead us to take a firm position on the truth, no matter what may come. That does not happen naturally, but in the power of the Holy Spirit for those who belong to Him. For in Him, we have forgiveness. In Him, we find purity. In Him, we find strength. In Him, we find endurance. The key is to be in Him. Believers are in Him by the new birth and the adoption into God's family by the power of the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers are separated from that reality. But for all who call upon Christ in faith, He will receive them and forgive them, and they will dwell with Him forever. But each one of us, as believers, we need to be surrendered to the leading of Christ. And if there's any that have not come to that place of surrender, have not come to that place of initial faith, Christ is ready to forgive you for your weaknesses, your shortcomings, and your failures, and to give you not only new desire, but new strength to overcome.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the promises of your word, for the glory of your great and holy name, for the shed blood of Christ Jesus, which purifies all who call upon him in faith. Lord, we pray that by your spirit this morning, Lord, that you would touch our hearts, that you would lead us to a place of repentance, Lord, in which we recognize our failures and our shortcomings, and in which we submit ourselves to you, Lord, for cleansing and seeking, Lord, your strength and your will and your power to overcome and to stand firm in the truth of your word. And Lord, we rejoice in the promise that you have said that for whoever comes to you, you will in no way turn them aside. But Father, you invite us to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, both for the gift of faith, but also, Lord, for the gift of sanctification in which we grow in that faith. And so, Lord, I just pray that you have your way in our hearts this morning, that you would lead us into a place in our lives where we might represent you better in truth so that our yes will be yes and our no will mean no so that Christ is exalted among us and the gospel might go forth with power. We ask this all in the precious name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.